0: Hey, we caught the mute quicker this time. Good morning, Pastor Gary here. I'm super excited about today's sermon. In fact, I'm really excited about this entire series. I always enjoy doing character studies in the scriptures, and that is really what this book, the book of Esther is about in a sense. Last week, we looked at Esther chapter one, where we saw King Xerxes throw a huge party in order to gain the favor of those who serve under him in order to support a war campaign in Greece. We were introduced to this lovely queen, Queen Varshti, Vashti, who refused to honor a dishonorable request that he had made of her. Her denial, however, cost her the crown and access to the king. Why was there such a hard judgment upon our queen, though? You see, as with most kingdoms, your life is not yours. It is the kingdom's, and the kingdom expects you to live like this. Many of us are having this repulsive gut reaction right now to that idea, and that is because of the way this sounds to our American minds. We cherish individuality and individual freedoms, but most of us have really not chosen to resist our culture, and we have gleefully embraced many of our culture's darkest underpinnings. I'm weird, and I know it. I am both a Star Wars fan and a Star Trek fan and many of their fans believe such a thing should not be permitted. But I don't like to feel constrained by such an either-or approach to life, so I oftentimes accept a both-and approach. Star Trek, I believe, has what is one of the greatest enemies ever devised in either a TV series or a movie, and this is The Borg. I realize some of you may not be familiar with the Borg. The Borg is essentially an AI that has developed the means to implant technology into biological beings. When it does, that being then becomes a part of what is called the collective. And at that moment, the individual is lost and the many become of one mind. And so when the collective makes a decision to do something, they all as one make that decision. And the Borg's ultimate goal is to assimilate all biological sentient beings in the singular collective. I don't know if the authors intended to create this great literary foil to humanity, but they have done an amazing job for us. And in particular, American culture. In America, we have a unique sense of individuality that is oftentimes not seen in many countries to the extent that it is here in the U.S. At least that is what we like to portray And there are times that we will fight for that individuality. What I find so interesting is the battles that we oftentimes choose to pick to fight, and then those that we simply do not. You see, American culture is not any different than the Borg. If we were to go back, let's say, 100 to 150 years in our history, we would see some fairly distinct cultural groups within American society. We would see the Irish, the Polish, the Germans, the English, And there were other groups as well within our society. And when you encountered individuals from these very specific groups, you could tell which group they were a part of. They would make sure you knew, in fact, oftentimes. Now, fast forward to today, and those of us who are descended from any of those groups may say, I'm of Irish or German descent or whatever descent you may be from. But now you are simply an American. And today we celebrate that. But a hundred years ago, we didn't. We celebrated being an Irish American or a German American, right? But today we have all simply become Americans. You see, resistance to the collective is futile. Assimilation is necessary. Human beings have a strong need to feel like they fit in and are a part of the group around them. And the truth is that those individuals who resist the collective mind of the larger group will oftentimes be rejected just as queen vashti was rejected the struggle the church finds itself in is that we find ourselves citizens of two kingdoms we are citizens of the kingdom of the world in which we physically live but our true citizenship our ultimate citizenship is in a much greater kingdom an eternal kingdom a kingdom whose king is jesus christ the difficulty comes when for us our two kingdoms collide with very different ideas of how it is we should live our lives and when that happens what are we supposed to do how do we live life in the midst of two diametrically opposed kingdoms today my hope is to address these difficulties and one of the other problems that we as christians struggle with is how do we respond when we see others not living as though they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven if you've ever struggled with these questions and I hope that you have. Today's message will help you to tra- tra- to traverse what can be a minefield of subjects at times that our culture and the church oftentimes disagree on. So let's look at Esther chapter 2. And let's see how Mordecai and Esther chose to live this out. Our story begins in verse 1. And we read, Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what he had decreed about her." So after Xerxes has had some time to cool off and chill out just a bit, he remembers what he had done to his queen, and he's sad. Xerxes is a pretty fickle and violent king, so no one wants a sad, unpredictable king to live around. With Xerxes, this could mean people losing their lives for the littlest of things. So we gotta do something about this, right? And so we read in verses 2 through 4, Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them, Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Now let's think back and remember the incident that caused all of this to come about. It was Vashti's non-compliance to the king, right? So let's look at what matters most in the woman that the king is seeking to replace and fix the problem we saw in Vashti. The attendants proposed, it says, let a search be made for one, a beautiful, two, young, three virgins for the king. This is what matters. These are the three most important things the king needs to look for. And so they send out government officials to find beautiful young virgins from all across the Persian empire. They're not looking for volunteers. They're going to take those whom they please those whom please their eyes the most. They are not asking their parents for permission. They are simply taking these young women and placing them within the harem of King Xerxes to become his property. Today we would call this human trafficking, but resistance is futile. Assimilation is required. This would be equivalent to our draft during wartime, perhaps, except we are drafting only beautiful women to become Barbie dolls for the king. Our story continues, and we're introduced to a man named Mordecai. Mordecai, we're told, is of Jewish descent, and he was serving in the citadel in the city of Susa. He was a descendant, we see, of the very first king of Israel, King Saul. His ancestors had been carried off, we can tell, into exile by 597 B.C., In fact, Mordecai is a child of exile. He had never known life within Israel. He was forced to live his life in the clash of two cultures, and our author brings this up very subtly in the way that he introduced him. First, he's identified as a Jew, and that his genealogy goes back to the golden days of Israel. Our author wants to make sure that we understand who Mordecai is below the surface, not just skin deep who Mordecai sees himself as. And so our author wants us to understand that Mordecai may be a citizen of Susa and of Persia, but Mordecai was a descendant of the first king of Israel. And so his true home was not Susa, but Israel. Second, we see in his name Mordecai. This is a Hebrew form of the Babylonian name Mordukah And so we see this man trying to live his life in the midst of two kingdoms. While he's at home, he is Mordecai the Jew. And while he is at work, he is Mordecai, the faithful servant of the empire. Many exiles actually use two names. We see this with Daniel and his friends when they are carried off by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar gives them new Babylonian names. And the same is true of the member of Mordecai's household that we find. She was his cousin, and he had taken her into his care because she had been orphaned. She too had dual names, and therefore carried this concept of dual identity. First and foremost, while at home, she had her Hebrew name, which was Hadassah, which means Myrtle. The empire, however, knew her as Esther, or Star, and that's how we're going to come to know her. The other very important piece of information we're given in verse 7 about Esther is that the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. She was exactly what the empire was looking for. So, just as all of the other exiles... She was forced to live this balancing act between two kingdoms. We all oftentimes reach a point when we have to choose which kingdom ultimately defines us. And we are going to see just how Esther makes this decision. But remember, resistance is futile. Assimilation is required. Now, I think that we can anticipate the fate of Esther at this point in our story. Because in verse 8 we read, When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed... Many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. There was no arguing that this could have made a difference and Esther was going to go with the officials when they came for her. There was no choice. There are times in our lives when there are things that come along that simply cannot be changed. When Esther's parents died, She could have argued all day long with God about it, but in the end, God had a purpose. Mordecai's ancestors fought against being exiled, but in the end, God had a purpose. She could have resisted going, and in the end, she would have lost, because in the end, God has a purpose. There are times that things are just going to happen that we would love to see changed but we are powerless to effect. Resistance is futile. Assimilation is required. And Esther has been trained by Mordecai to assimilate well. We read in verse 9, The girl pleased him, Haggai, and won his favor immediately. He provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. And so Esther works towards assimilation. She doesn't resist it at all. She finds herself in the midst of this competition for the right to be queen. All of these women would have been young and beautiful. That's why they were selected. She had only one way to win, and that was through the one thing Vashti had failed to show, compliance. Resistance is futile assimilation is required. And as a result, she receives the best food and an early start on her beauty treatments. Now, I have to touch on these beauty treatments briefly because this is just insane in my mind. We read in verse 12 about these, and it says, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. I don't know what that is. These were already naturally beautiful women, and they spend then another 12 months trying to make them even more attractive. Just real quick, though. Nothing has changed in the history of humanity. The only difference now in our time period is that we don't spend 12 months We spend 12 seconds with special software that is meant to make us look more appealing. Guess we don't resist much yet, either, do we? Resistance is futile. Assimilation is required. It is very interesting that God has provided us with two very similar stories concerning the exiles. We have our story here of Esther and how the empire attempts to assimilate her into the system. And then we have the story of Daniel and his friends who resist assimilation. And yet, as similar as they are, they're extremely different. Daniel and his friends refused to eat the best of the foods provided to them because they had been sacrificed to false gods. Esther, on the other hand, has no problem eating this food and even being used as the king's plaything, so to speak. And following Mordecai's instruction, she keeps the very fact that she's a Jew concealed. We read in verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, we don't know exactly why Mordecai had chosen to do this. It doesn't say. My guess, though, is that there were those within the empire who were quite prejudiced toward the Jews. We're going to see this later in the story. And so he is trying to protect Esther from this reality. And so at this point in our story, Esther has become the perfect assimilate of the empire her compliance has caused her to become favored by all those who looked upon her beauty. Finally, Esther is going to have the opportunity to now woo the king. And we read in verse 16 and 17, it says, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins so he set a royal crown on her head and he made her queen instead of vashti now this is the niv translation it says that the king was attracted to esther as i was looking at this in hebrew it's an odd translation and of all of the major translation the niv is the only one that chooses this translation for some reason Every other translation translates this using a literal translation of the Hebrew word here, "hava," which means love. Xerxes loved Esther. This is not something our author ever says concerning Xerxes' relationship with Vashti. And we can argue that they have only had a one-night stand, and so this isn't true love. But here's what I can say. Our author, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, used the word love to describe the relationship between Esther and Xerxes. And he never used that word to describe the relationship between Xerxes and Vashti. And so in the end, these two relationships were fundamentally different. And we are going to see that difference come to play soon enough. I think the most important question that we need to ask about this relationship now is what was God doing behind the scenes when he chose Esther to go before Xerxes And to be chosen by Xerxes. How much was he influencing the heart and mind of Xerxes that he might fall in love with Esther at first sight? This point is so easy to miss in our story. God is from the beginning to the end at work for the good of his people. And so we might see what we might see as evil at work. God meant for good for Esther. And so Esther is crowned queen. And all that is something, and well, that is something that must be celebrated, right? And so the king is going to throw a huge party, he likes these big parties, and present to the world his new lovely queen. In verse 18 we read, Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Esther comes out of the scene within the kingdom. And the first experience that most people have concerning Esther is that they don't have to pay taxes for a while. And they receive good gifts. This would have caused the average person on the street to really be ingratiated towards Esther, which was completely unnecessary. She was the queen. She had no real power. It all rested with Xerxes. I believe it was an unforeseen consequence of the king's joy at finding not only a worthy queen, but one whom he might actually love. You certainly weren't expecting our story to turn into a love story, were you? God, in the midst of what, today, we would ultimately call human trafficking, causes a love story to bloom. This is the mystery and the majesty of the omniscient omnipotence of God the Father. Particularly when our world is crying out, Resistance is futile. Assimilation is required. But all the while, Mordecai and Esther were secretly doing what they thought was best in order to resist complete assimilation. They recognized that to a certain degree resistance was futile and most likely would mean death. And so they did what they could without making a big deal out of their actions, right? They didn't feel like they had to stand before the world and cry out, I am a Jew of noble birth. I shall never allow myself to be disrespected in such a manner. My body, my choice, was not a rallying cry of the people during this time. Because such an outcry would have meant certain death for disobeying the decree of the king. And so Mordecai and Esther had made the decision to maintain their Jewish heritage secret we read again in verse 20 but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions just as she had when he was bringing her up she kept secret the fact that she was not just a Jew but a Jew descended of the first king of Israel And my guess is that they did not want this fact to be used and abused by the empire against the people of God. We will also see, as we continue in our story, that there was, by some, a significant distaste for the Jews by many within the empire. And this may have kept Esther from being able to rise in favor, as she did within the citadel at Susa, even prior to becoming queen. And, as we shall see, this was God's plan all along. So we need to be careful how we place judgment against Mordecai and Esther for hiding their Jewish roots. Was it the wrong thing to do? I personally believe that it was. God has always called his people to be open about who they are as followers of the one true God, and they were not. But the beauty of our story is that even in the midst of their mistakes and errors, and even perhaps sin, God's will is being fulfilled for his people. Through their lives, I have no doubt that Mordecai and Esther were true followers of God, and I also believe that they made some mistakes, just as all of us do. There were times and way and ways in which they fell into the world's trap. Remember, resistance is futile; assimilation is required. So, Vashti has been deposed; Esther has been coronated. Xerxes is in love, and life in the kingdom is good. What could possibly go wrong? Well, not everyone likes the king, and he is now experiencing at this time a high point in his reign, even though he has recently been defeated by the Greeks. We're not told about that in our story. We know that historically. The people are willing to overlook that, though. Not just are there no new taxes, there are no taxes for a while. But there are those who have lost faith in their fearless, valiant warrior leader, Xerxes. We know that he has lost to the Greeks, and now he is in love with this woman, so much so that he removes taxes. He is losing his mind, it seems. He must be removed, they feel. This is a great story, right? It has all the great elements to make an amazing love story. Tragedy, love, intrigue, what's next? Oh, we need to get to our intrigue part. It's brief, but don't worry, there will be more. Let's read verses 21 and 22. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Mordecai just happens to be in the right place at the right time and just so happens to overhear these two men plotting to assassinate the king. Look, I don't believe in luck or karma and these such things. I believe that God directed Mordecai that morning to sit in a very specific locale or God moved these two men to walk near to where Mordecai was normally seated and speak in a manner so that it was possible for Mordecai to overhear. It didn't just so happen, like I said. It wasn't dumb luck. It was the mysterious majesty of our omniscient, omnipotent God on display for the world to see. They were blind to see it. That's why God wrote this story, so that we here today might see in wonder. Esther goes to the king and reveals the plot to assassinate him. And of course, this man, this king, Xerxes, who loves his wife, his queen, doesn't think twice but to trust her, and so he orders an immediate investigation, and it is found to be true, and these two men were sentenced to death and hung. Then we are told that all of these events were recorded in the book of the Annals of, in the presence of the king. Unfortunately, all of that has been lost, most likely when the great library in Alexandria were burned, and we lost so much history and ancient writings, but even that, I believe, was the hand of God for some reason For some great purpose. So far in our brief story we have seen a war council that lasted six months, a party that lasted seven days and ended tragically. Perhaps as any party that goes that long probably would. We have seen a royal search for the most beautiful young virgins of the land to fight for the pleasure of the king and we have seen a queen crowned, a Jew of noble birth exiled from her land who had lost so much, but gained what the world saw as everything her heart could imagine. But our queen secretly held on to her Jewish roots, even though she was crowned the queen of the Persian Empire. All this while, all the while, the world was crying out to her resistance is futile, assimilation is required. It's really easy for us to just sit back here today in a very different time period, in a very different country, in a very different culture, and to be critical of Esther's decisions. Most women during this time would have been willingly competing for the crown. So Esther's chances were pretty slim, to be honest. So what she was really walking into was most likely a one-night stand with the king, and then a very mundane life within the king's harem as a concubine to be paraded around as a living doll. In order to display the king's power and might and the great beauty of the kingdom, should Esther have resisted such an existence? The Jewish scriptures should have led her to do so. Her Jewish heritage should have led her to resist and not to be assimilated. Now, That would have been most likely ended in her death. And as a result, she chose not to result, not to resist, but be somewhat assimilated on this point. Did she make the right decision? I'm not certain. We are never told in the scriptures, but if she had not made the decision, this very decision, we will see later in our story that the consequences would have been disastrous for all the Jews. The difficulty is that we want the answer to the question, did she, or did she not do the right thing here? Should she have stood up for what was right and what was wrong? In the end, we don't truly know the answer to this question. And the harder question, I think the answer is, what would you have done? What would I have done in the same situation? You may have a real quick answer for me and say, I would stand my ground, but When guards are standing there ready to impale you, I'm not so sure you would be so tough. I don't know what I would do even as a father. I have an 18-year-old daughter. I know what I hope I would do, but I don't know. And if you say that Esther did the wrong thing, then you would have to deal with some very big issues later in our story that Esther has uniquely been placed by God in the position she is in order to be able to deal with. What then? The hardest part of this is that this was clearly the hand of God at work. We all deal with difficult decisions in our lives. Hopefully, none of us have to deal with a decision like Esther was forced to face. But we are continually being forced to decide and choose between the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of heaven. And like Esther, we must be wise when we choose the battles that we must fight. The scriptures say that this world, in the age in which we now find ourselves, is ruled by Satan. Right now, for the time being, Satan is the prince of this time. God has allowed this because of our sin, and Satan is going to, at every turn, force mankind to make a decision, will we follow after him, or will we follow after God? In which kingdom do you truly reside? Resistance is futile. Assimilation is required. But God, God the Father, has provided the means of resistance. It is called faith. And faith is not blind. Faith can and will and only be placed in that which we hold to be completely true and verifiable. And so God has provided us with His faith. The faith of Jesus has been given to us so that we might see and believe. Faith in the story of Jesus is our ultimate means of resistance against sin and the corrupting ideals of this world. Jesus Christ was born in this world of the Virgin Mary, through the power of the Holy Spirit within her, who knit the baby Jesus into existence within her very womb. Jesus was born into this world as a baby, a baby who was 100% man and 100% God, all at the same time. This was necessary so that he, Jesus, could live a perfect, sinless life. Only God could do such a thing. But a man needed to, because a man, Adam, the first man sinned. And in that moment, he fell into sin. It was as if we all had sinned. And in that moment, all of mankind fell, and we was declared sinful. We all became sinners in that very moment. Not the first time you sinned, the first time Adam sinned. God declared man fallen and sinful. And God required a sacrifice then to be made for that sin. And because a man had brought that sin into this world, the sacrifice must be a man. And that man needed to be perfectly sinless. But no mere man could do such a thing. And so God the Father had to cause God the Son, Jesus, to be born into this world as a man. Then and only then could a man, as God, live in a way that was worthy of the sacrifice that God required. There must be a price paid for sin. So Jesus chose to be born in this world as a man. He chose to live a life whose sole purpose was to live perfectly sinless so that he might die a sacrifice to his father. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life so that he might be crucified by man. And when man placed him upon that cross and raised him up, God the Father looked into the very eyes of his Son. And in that moment, he poured out all of his wrath and anger towards sin. And Jesus died in order to pay the price that we ourselves owed. Jesus was taken from the cross, and he was buried. And then miraculously, three days later, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he arose from the dead, proving his power not only over sin, but over life and death as well. Then, after spending time with his disciples and being witnessed by hundreds of people, he gloriously rose into the heavens and returned to the Father, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And we know that one day, as he has left us into the heavens, he shall return. Jesus will return in the clouds in order to judge this world. And when he he returns, all of mankind will be resurrected from the dead to be judged and our destinies revealed. There will be but two destinies, eternal life with Jesus in heaven or an eternity of torment and pain in hell. Our world cries out. Resistance is futile and assimilation is required because Satan doesn't want to be alone. He hates humanity and wants to see all of us walk into the flames with him. He knows his destination. But God, but God has provided a means of resistance. That means is grace. The grace of God that was shown to us when Jesus died on the cross. The grace of God when Jesus arose from the dead. The grace of God that when you place your faith in Jesus, the Father no longer sees your sin. Instead, he sees someone covered by the blood of Jesus, someone clothed in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are then filled, we are filled by the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is God, and his power has been given to us so that the phrase, Resistance is futile, assimilation is required, is no longer true of us. This world wants to assimilate you and shape you into their fallen likeness. How do you resist? You believe in Jesus. You daily arise and remind yourself of the truth of who Jesus is to you and what he did to free you from the bondage of the board. I mean, this world and sin. The only hope we have of truly being free, thinking, thinking, freely functioning human beings is to resist this world by the grace of God that is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you that you have brought us freedom. I thank you that by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, resistance is not futile and assimilation is not required we are able to stand against this world and against sin. Jesus, we pray that you would guard our hearts and minds that are so easily swayed to believe the world before we believe you. Help us to not fall into the traps of this world. Holy Spirit, empower us to overcome the sin that is within us daily. Holy Spirit, refresh us anew in our faith in Jesus Christ that we might stand firm and fight the good fight. And now,